All right, welcome brothers and sisters to our Sheepgate Fellowship Sunday service from March 28th. It's the last Sunday of the month of March. It's also Palm Sunday, marking the beginning of Passion Week, meaning this Friday, or this coming Friday, will be Good Friday, and we'll have an announcement on that at the end of today's service. And then, of course, next week will be Easter Sunday, as we mark the resurrection of Christ. And so this is a wonderful week for every week is, of course, but uh, maybe even ever so uh, important week for us to reflect, remember, and appreciate uh, the love of Christ displayed on the cross for our sins. So, uh, as we are, uh, as we go into today's text, let's keep that in mind. Let's keep that in mind as sort of a backdrop for uh, what we will be learning uh, and what we'll be continuing to learn as the week progresses. So, let's go to Judges chapter seven, verses one to twenty-three. We're in the now in the seventh chapter of the book of Judges, right? And of course, the story of Gideon uh, spans. Um, up, up until this point, at least, it is the longest, um, longest of longest span of chapters for any judge so far. So it's he, his story spans from chapter six all the way to chapter eight. Um, so f- let's turn to the seventh chapter and continue to read the story and narrative of Gideon, uh, this judge uh, within the book of Judges. So we've already looked at how he was called. We looked at sort of the testings that he gave to God, right, like the dew and the dry wool and the wet wool and all of that stuff. And now we're looking to um, Gideon, uh, now we're looking to the actual calling or the ministry of Gideon and his conquering of the Midianites and the Amalekites. So, Judges 7 verses 1 to 23. This is what the Word of God reads. Then Jerubbaal, that's Gideon, of course, the name that was given to him last chapter, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for for you there. Therefore it shall be that of he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterward your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. 
Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend, and he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to, tent and to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the 300 men into three comp companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them, with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, when you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. When they blew three hundred trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even, the, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shita towards Zerera, as far as the edge of Abel Mehola. By Tabith, the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Amen. This is the word of God. Our unreached people group of the day comes from Bangladesh. They are the Hadi of Bangladesh. And like last week, it's a small population of about 56,000 people. Only 0.65% of these people are Christian. None are evangelical Christians. So we want to pray today for this mainly Hindu group of Hadi in Bangladesh who live in parts uh, of Bangladesh and Nepal and India uh, spread throughout these countries. And we like to pray for their salvation and the reaching um, of their souls uh, with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So let's pray for the Hadi of Bangladesh. Okay, another tough week. Not a lot, a lot of stuff happening in the world these days and a lot of messages and a lot of uh, different things that are going on, right? Vaccinations are spreading. COVID numbers are going up. You know, like we got the whole Asian hate thing going on now. Um, amidst all of this, amidst all of this, you know, I think uh, it's easy for us to demonize, right? Uh, based on racial barriers, based on the past and based on things and prejudices and biases that, you know, we inherently uh, believe and inherently uh, uh, per perceive in the world. Uh, but as Christians, we're not told to look at Jew or Gentile, man or woman, or slave nor free. We're told that in our union with Christ, that there is a bond there that looks beyond those things. And so we can't look at the world through identity politics or critical race theory or these or these types of things. It's not bad to, it's, I'm not saying like you're crazy for looking at the world that way. What I'm saying is a Christian, the Bible's lens on the world is saved and unsaved. And that's where our focus needs to be as a believer, right? And so if we're looking through that lens, that biblical lens, then we're literally looking at the core issue of whatever you want to call it, racism or anything else. It's sin. And so I'd like to pray for the world once again, that it's not stop Asian hate. It's just 
We need to stop sin, right? We need to ask people to stop sinning. That'll stop all forms, whatever the external, you know, ultimate outcome may be. It starts with a core issue of sinfulness. And we're all guilty, whether you're the person virtue signaling this message or the person who's supposed to receive these virtue signaling messages. We're all guilty of sin. Let's pray together uh, for sinful mankind that they would come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. Let's pray together. God, on this Palm Sunday, as we begin a week, we refer to as Passion Week, but really, um, it just commemorates something that we should be remembering every moment of our lives, that being the gift of Christ, the sacrifice on the cross for our sins. So Father, we come to you this day, to your word, seeking truth, and seeking, Lord Father, conviction in our hearts. Once again, not just knowledge, not just wisdom, but conviction in our hearts that would be transformative in every area of our life. God, we also pray for the Hadi of Bangladesh, that this message of Christ that we celebrate this week and commemorate and remember so wholeheartedly would be known in this community and among these people. For they are unreached at this moment. We pray for Christians to reach out to them. We also pray, Lord Father, for the world that continues to experience and see and deal with in such um, tormenting ways the reality of human sin, the outcome of human sin, the reality of a fallen world that lives in a fallen, depraved nature. And currently, we're sensitive about racism. We're sensitive about the outcomes of these things. We're sensitive about how these things are are going on and when it affects my community, we're even more sensitive about it. But God, at the very end of the day, we understand that the core issue of mankind is not just racism, but it's sin. And so Father, we pray that this generation would come to know themselves a sinner and you a savior. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon is entitled today, 300 Men. And it comes, of course, straight from the text. We're dealing with an army of 300. That's like nothing, right? Compared to what historians would argue uh, with the Midianite and the Amalekite army, approximately 120,000 men. That's how big this camp and this army was. You don't blame the 22,000 for ditching the camp, right? Anyways, our title is 300 men. Now, before I go into the text itself, there's obviously this, these 23 verses span a lot of things and touch on a lot of different things. And so I'm only going to touch on a couple things. Um, but you need to be very careful in your exposition, exposition and reading of a text like this. For example, when you read verses 4 to 8 and you read about this, this testing of the people, right? Oh, you know, there's still too many people, so they had to lap around the water and blah, blah, blah. The wrong way to look at this is that, oh, this is the way that, you know, this is a template for us to follow in terms of like how to make, how to choose people who are worthy. Is God testing them? Like, are they willing to lap the water and, and not drink water? Like, that's the, that's a sign of, of, of quality in a person to be able to be a soldier for God. That's just a wrong exposition. That's not the focus of the text. So be very careful in reading texts like this and exposing or expositing something that's just really not there. Just want to give you that heads up before we continue. Back in 2000, back in 2000, as soon as you read 300 Men, what do you think of? I think of a movie. Back in 2000, there was a movie called 300, right? And it's based on a comic book series by the same title, 300. The series is based on a battle known as the Battle of Thermopylae during the Persian War between Persia and Greece, or the nations of Greece. Greece, was, of course, was divided into kingdoms, one of them being Sparta. 
And this comic was based on uh, what what is perceived to be uh, historical battles, right? Or it could be mythical battles too, right? The movie depicted the hero Leonidas, right? Who was the king of Sparta, and of course, your very fame, his very famous, you know, scene in the movie where he kicks down the messenger down the hole, and of course, just this really heroic king, right? He, and he leads this this group of just three hundred men, just just three hundred men. Of course, each man is like ten men, really, if you watch the movie, right? But there's three hundred men into battle against a Persian army. And of course, it's the biblical king of King Xerxes, right, in the book of Esther. It's a Persian army of 300,000 men, right? So 300 versus 300,000. That's like a thousand times per man, right? So the movie highlights the bravery, the might of these men, these Spartans, to fight against the odds. And almost, and if you watch the movie, they actually end up almost victorious. Okay, I ruined the movie for you if you didn't watch it. But anyways, they end up almost victorious as if it were... You know, if it were not for, like, this really hunchback, freaky little traitor guy uh, who leaks vital military information that exposes a weakness, right, and ultimately ends up uh, in the death of these 300 men, the Spartans could have maybe won, right? And so there's an epic nature to that story. An epic nature of the story is the classic underdog story, right? The underdog story is, of course, something that is really emotionally tugging for us to our emotional heartstrings where the weaker opponent is able to stand up against its seemingly greater and, and mightier foe people generally enjoy these types of stories we like rooting for the underdog we like the david versus goliath stories right think about how many inspirational stories there are on youtube or in the world today and documentaries that have been filmed of underdog stories I swear, every single documentary on every single professional athlete ever is an underdog story. I beat the odds, I, I worked my butt off, and I got to the top, I climbed the mountain, whatever it may be, right? All of these inspirational stories, they're all underdog stories. Everyone wants to be the underdog, right? Someone beats the odds, they end up successful, whether it be sports or career or business or anything else. These stories inspire us, the self-proclaimed weak to have hope and continue to strive on, right? That's where we find inspiration. Today's text, it has a resemblance to something of like this movie that I'm talking about. Here's 300 men up against the foe of over 150,000. Yeah, it's not 300,000, but it's over 150,000 soldiers and seemingly outmatched in every way. But Gideon is no Leonidas. He's not a heroic king. He, but... He's just not a strong-willed, lead, natural leader who's just willing his 300 men to victory. He's nothing like that. Gideon is no Leonidas in this story. But let me be very, very clear about this. Leonidas is no God. He is no Yahweh either. You see, the story we read here today could seem like the classic underdog story that we love to fall in love with. But read carefully, and the text simply isn't that see if you have a proper understanding of who god is who's the underdog in this story it's the midianites you could have 150 million men and they're still the underdog so the story we read is not about that it's not about an underdog overcoming obstacle and gaining success and victory the text we read here today, 
in this story is actually about something else. It's about the necessity of human weakness and the necessity of God in light of that weakness. Gideon is no hero here. He's no hero. God is. And so we will look to that. Gideon is also one of those names like Jonah where I don't get why people name their kid Gideon. <laughs> He's like just not a great example. I just don't get it. Like why would you name your kid Samson? Right? Or why would you name your kid like Saul? Right? Like I just don't get it. But people do it. Sure, go ahead. Right? We have two points to our sermon today and that's it. Point number one. God's strength magnified in human weakness. Point number two. It is better to be a servant than a hero. And we'll expand on these very general titles. Point number one, God's strength magnified in human weakness. One of the basic principles of the gospel, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is perhaps, I'm going to just argue, perhaps overlooked or misunderstood even by some churchgoers and some Christians today, is that we are in need of saving and need of a savior. The key word there is need. We are in need of saving and in need of a savior. It's not a want. It's not a prescription. It's not a recommendation. It's a need. We are in need of saving and we are in need of a savior. God does not save us because it could help us, you know? He does, certainly does not send Jesus to die for our sins on a cross because it might be something that's useful to us. He saves us on the cross because we are damned in our transgression. And he dies for us because we can't pay the price of sin on our own. We need saving and we need a savior. Thus Jesus states, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. To fail to understand this component of the gospel is like this. You're in a burning house. Sorry, honey. But you're in a burning house and you need people to help you and save you. And here comes the fireman. They come to you and they're like, hey, I'm here to save you. And you say, I don't need your help. I'm okay. Right? So to know and believe the gospel is to believe two things simultaneously about yourself. That you are a sinner deserving of death and that Jesus is a savior who died the death you deserve so that you can have eternal life through union with him. That's an important premise, an important principle that the gospel teaches us. Verse 2 states this, The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying what? My own power has delivered me. So here's God. He looks at 32,000 men who are willing to fight. And you would think God would be like, I applaud this, right? But no, he knows Israel in its current state. And he says, no, <laughs> I know what you're going to do. If I send 32,000 people and I know, I, of course, he can deliver with one person or 32,000 people. It doesn't matter. If I deliver you with 32,000 men, you're just going to say, we did this. We did this, Israel. And you're just going to turn away from God again. God has his sights set on something else. God stacked the odds against Israel's army, 300 to 150,000, to ensure what? That they could take no credit. That they could not take any credit for victory. Like, imagine them, 300 men, victory. They go back home and they go, we did this. What is Israel going to say? No way you did that. No way. God knows them 
very well. He knows Israel very well by this point. In fact, we should know Israel pretty well by this point. Their tendency and their habits to continue to do evil against God. God knows them well as he knows us well. You sometimes wonder why God doesn't just make your life easy for you. The road is just paved. Beautiful road and you just, you just walk it. This narrow path, it's just beautiful, and it's flowers and dandelions. No. You sometimes wonder. Even, have, even having the original 32,000 men or the 10,000 men after the 2000, or 22,000 men leave, that would have been an extremely difficult feat and task to defeat the Midianite army. But God preserves 300 out of the original 32,000. 300, that's it. Can you imagine what Gideon... An already proven, weak-hearted man with little faith and absolute fear overwhelming his heart was thinking, what? What? Like, he was already afraid, but he got cut from 32,300 men and God is telling him, you will win this battle. I've already delivered them to you. What do you think he was thinking? God orchestrates a victory that could only be credited to God. Because he fears something worse for Israel than an Israelite than an Israelite loss in battle. He fears something worse than that. He fears our pride blinding us from faith. What a good God we have. That he would care for us on such a deep level. This is like a teacher caring for our understanding of the material. More than just the grades we get. Understanding the teacher, a good teacher would know, leads to an improvement in grades. What is important here is not what Gideon is fearful of, but what God is fearful of on our behalf. I don't mean fearful in the human sense. Our sights many times are set on the very wrong things absolutely wrong things one commentator writes this he says if we really believe the principle not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the lord of hosts Zechariah 4 6 then our smallness does not matter if we really believe the principle some trust in chariots and some in horses but we will remember the name of the lord our god then smallness does not matter Surely the template of demonstrating God's strength is not always to make his people weak. I don't think, anyways. As we've seen counterexamples to this, of course, throughout Scripture. For example, Moses is called in his weakness. He's given strength to do. Um, and he's given companionship as well to be able to accomplish the deliverance of Israel. But in cases where his people are proud and prone to boast, maybe that kind of tugs us a string in your own heart, I think this template is certainly ideal. Here we have a situation with a proud nation prone to sin and a God seeking to bring about their humility. And a God wanting to demonstrate his strength to them, not for the purposes of his own boasting to his people, but for the purposes of drawing his people back to him. So here we have the conditions that dictate the necessity of human weakness in order to magnify the delivering power of God. 
Again, I remind you of this. I remind you of the central gospel teaching. In human weakness and the recognition of one's weakness, can we see truly the magnitude of the saving grace and power of Christ's deliverance? If you fail to see yourself as sinner, you are totally failing to see Jesus as Savior. There's no doubt about that in my mind. There's no way. You are a Pharisee who fails to see your sin and thus fails to see Jesus even as he stands in front of you. John MacArthur writes, Those of faith, though inadequate by human weakness, gain victory only through God's power. I am reminded of Luke 18. And this is the warning for you today. You and I, I should say. In Luke 18, we find four parables, one of which is the parable of the tax collector and a Pharisee that go to the temple to pray. Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18 as follows. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Listen carefully and think to yourself, is this my prayer? This is what the Pharisee prayed. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away, Jesus says, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying these words, God, be merciful to me. The sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house, Jesus says, justified. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Israel. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember that the Apostle Paul on, his, on the road to Damascus was brought down to utter weakness from his literal and figurative high horse, made blind, not just, to, not just physically, but blind, made blind to recognize the blindness of his spirituality. But not to just keep him blind and keep him on the floor, but rather to open his eyes. Again, literally and spiritually to the true reality of Christ, his gospel, and his calling for the ages and generations to come. In his weakness, Paul's weakness, when he was made most weak, was he then made most strong. But was he richer following after that calling and being made blind? Was he stronger physically? Was he more handsome? Was he more, more exalted? Was he more, his status was greater on the world, in the world? No. Persecuted, scorned, chased, no security in almost anything, financial and or future, imprisoned, beaten, tortured, threatened. Kind of life you willingly choose. Point number two, 
It's better to be a servant than a hero. And it ties really well with the first point. We all want to be the star, of course. Most of us, anyway. We want to be the hero, the one giving credit. But what we see in the narratives of Scripture is that it's better to pursue being a servant of God than to be a hero among people. Certainly, we can be used by God in our servitude and be praised by people incorrectly as a heroic person. And at times, we can be a heroic medium in some instances, right? Like David, like King David. There are heroic episodes in David's life. Moses comes to mind, right? As he delivers Israel out of the slavery in Egypt. But it's better to pursue a life of serving God than to be praised by man. Be who God calls us to be than one that is praised by many. This is really important. Verse 22, it says, When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. The victory, victory is in God's hand, and the victor is truly God. This latter section of the text is unusual on so many levels, but just reading and taking the text for what it says, the events are unbelievably peculiar. After receiving confirmation of victory, as if God hadn't already promised this enough to Gideon, through a Midianite dream interpreted by a servant of Gideon, of course, what strange means of encouragement this is, of course, and then the battle itself, already outnumbered, hopeless beyond measure, of course, other than God's word and the security of his word, the Israel army is commanded to rise early before dawn, spread around the Midianite camp. So you can imagine 150,000 people in the middle of this camp, and you have 300 Israelites surrounding this camp right before dawn. And they have a trumpet in one hand, not a sword, not a spear, not an arrow, not even a weapon, a trumpet, an instrument, a musical instrument at that. A trumpet in one hand, and in the other, a torch. And not just, not just a torch uh, that you can even use as a weapon. It's a torch with a pitcher over the fire. What kind of ridiculous military strategy is this? And then they are told by Gideon and God to smash the pitcher when signaled and to blow their trumpet. So you smash the pitcher and reveal the fire. And then you blow your trumpet as if to just wake these people up and signal your own death. Does this sound like a winning strategy to you? Does this give you hope? Are you assured that this is the means to victory? The answer is no. It's an obvious no. But what we see here is perfect obedience and trust of God's commands for once in Gideon's life and hope in God's promised word. And look what happens. Service to God, as strange and hopeless as it may seem or feel at the time, far exceeds any human-centric accomplishment. We can win battles in our life on our own. We can struggle through things and we come out victorious. Absolutely. But you can't win the war. You're dead to sin. Serve God and let Him be the hero of your life. He rightfully is. I remember playing basketball with my friends during recess in middle school. 
We'd all pretend like we were a real basketball player. You ever do that? You go to the court and you're like, oh, I'm this, I'm that guy, right? Everyone claiming to be one star after another. And everyone, of course, is Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Allen Iverson, Vince Carter, etc., right? Nobody claims in those childish little games on the recess courts, oh, I'm Derek Anderson, I'm Rafael Araujo, I'm Jimmer Ferdet, or I'm Derek Martin. Nobody does that. Why? Because those are trash players, right? Nobody ever does that. Okay, no, no disrespect to those guys if they're listening. They're not, of course. But you know why? You know why nobody does that? Because you barely know who those guys are. You don't even know who those guys are, right? No disrespect to them, honestly. But it's just facts. We all want to be stars. When we stars, we dream of it. We want to be the hero, the one who causes victory. Nobody wants to be a role player, an assistant. But what we're being told so emphatically in this text and the rest of Scripture is... God is the hero. And when he shines, you shine with him. He's the only star. This is not to say you're pathetic and worthless and go to hell, right? But it's to say seek him. Seek being on his team. Be on his team. Serve him. Be a part of the story that he's writing. Because mysteriously, he invites you into the chapters of his book. The text is upfront and unapologetic in giving total credit to God. Note the 300 men. It's not the 300 men or Gideon that are praised. We are being told to be careful in doing the same in our own lives. Don't credit yourself anything else. Credit God. Remember Noah? He's told to build an ark. Moses to save Israel. Abraham to start a nation. David to rule his people. Disciples to make more disciples of all nations. Paul to preach to the Gentiles of the world. But who here reads the narratives of scripture, whether it be Moses or Abraham or David or Noah or the disciples or Paul, any of these stories, who reads these narratives in the Bible and reads these stories of these men and women throughout biblical history and redemptive history and concludes to themselves after reading these stories, Oh, Noah saved his family. Oh, Moses saved Israel. Abraham started this whole thing and this Israel the nation. David preserved Israel. Apostles started the church. No, no one does that. You know why? Because when you read the entire Bible, it's pretty apparent who they're crediting. I know Noah physically built the ark, but nobody would say Noah saved his family. God saved Noah and his family. No one says, oh, Moses is the reason Israel was delivered. God used Moses to deliver Israel from slavery. At least I hope you're not concluding these narratives in that way. It's very important. We understand they were instruments of God in unfolding His will. Do we not? And what is better than to obey, serve our God? It's a very simple rhetorical question with one simple answer, of course. Christ's crowning moment of victory. Of course, again, Palm Sunday, Passion Week. Remember this. Christ's crowning moment of victory and achievement is set on a cross as he is crucified. Upon which his lifeless body hung. How can the image of death be the very symbol of victory for all believers, past, present, future. Because we understand what is happening at that moment. His death is service to God's will, is in fact his greatest heroic moment. His saving act is his act of sacrifice. 
But here's us, the foolish people of this world, foolishly chasing a life that is so drastically different from the Savior's. We chase the life of lights and fame, prestige and comfort, wealth and pleasure. We seek a life distant from the cross. It's not enough to say that no man could die the death Christ died. I would say no man, even, even if they could, would even want to die the death that Christ died on the cross. You know why? Because we're selfish idiots. We're self-seeking, self-centered fools. We're sacrifice is in the form of the smallest offerings of charity to the church and the world. The smallest, ingenuine acts of kindness to one another. Hollow words of encouragement and admonishment to one another. Loud but empty proclamations and anthems from your heart. We are but pathetic. We look nothing like Christ on that cross. At least for me. I don't seek a life of sacrifice and dedication to the Lord. I make it look like that. But on the inside, I'm seeking the very same things everyone else is seeking. And to me, I conclude one thing. I'm pathetic. I'm still that kid on that basketball, basketball court trying to be Michael Jordan. But the Bible teaches this, he came to serve, not to be served. Isn't that unbelievable? The one who deserves the serving came to serve us. The ones who refuse to serve. Unbelievable. I conclude with this, today's lesson can be summed up simply by the word humility. F.F. Bruce paraphrases in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, specifically chapter 12, the love chapter, verse 9, and he relates and he sort of paraphrases the overarching theme of that chapter. And I think it applies really well to the text we read today. And he writes this, My, meaning God, God's power is most fully displayed when my people are weak. Two things to remember today. One, there are times in our lives where God will necessitate weakness to humble you and break you that you would be made new and strong. Not strong to boast, but strong in faith, strong in humility. Do not let weakness be an excuse for faithlessness. Point two, better to live your life in servitude of God, to be known as a servant of God, to die as a servant of God, than to try and be a superstar in this world. You may end up succeeding and achieving status in this world, you'll be forgotten. Do not make that your primary goal. Live your life for God, not for yourself. Die a death in honor of God, not a death for nothing. And I end with Dale Davis's wonderful, wonderful, short summary of this section of the text. He writes, in light of all of this, everything we've read here, we may need to alter our current stereotypes of what a servant of Christ is. We sometimes dupe ourselves into thinking that a real servant of Christ is only someone who is dynamic, assured, confident, brash, fearless, witty, adventuresome, or glamorous. Don't think you are unusable because you don't have that air about you. 
Christ takes uncertain and fearful folk, strengthens their hands in the oddest of ways, and makes them able to stand for him in school or home or work. We must not forget how the writer of Hebrews describes those we sometimes call the heroes of faith. I love this. He says, they were weak people who were given strength to be brave in war and drive back foreign invaders. And that is the word of God today. And I hope it has been some kind of challenge and conviction, if not encouragement and reminder to your heart and soul. Let's go in time of prayer and reflection on what God has taught us today. Let us pray.